This is the podcast for December 9th, 2011. It's not safe for work. Recorded live from just outside the Bill Crystal GOP Vice Presidential Wheel of Fortune, it's the professional left with Drift Glass and Blue Gal. Bill Crystal's Wheel of Fortune! <laughs> Which is right next to Runs Priebus's Magic 8 Ball. Mitt Romney, try again. Mitt Romney, oh, look, that's so good. Try again. Mitt Romney, try again. Ronald Reagan, dead. Try again. And, of course, next to Roger Ailes' Ouija board. Newt Gingrich, no. Newt Gingrich, for God's sakes, no. You're pushing it. You're pushing it. No, I'm not. It's moving on its own. Reagan, still dead. No. Still dead. It's so pathetic. It's pathetic and true, and it really is. They'll be sacrificing goats next. I yeah. swear to God. I'm depressed, Drift Glass. I know. And I, you've been helping me through it this week, but I'm really suffering from, I think, I keep saying to you that Michelle Malkin would tell me I'm suffering from Gingrich derangement syndrome. Yeah. yeah. It yeah. bothers me so much, and before we start talking about Gingrich as if he's a real thing in the world, which that's the problem. Yep. It just bothers me so much when I see signs and statistics about children and poverty and real issues going on with people suffering so much in this economy during the holidays. And you know, the news is horrible. And yeah, then true. we switch to talking about politics, and it's about Gingrich, as if there's even a possibility that he could be yeah. elected president. Well, and there's, there's Gingrich as a creature and there's Gingrich as a policy spewer and his policy on children is just poor children you know beating up poor children this is what this this frankly is the difference between the left and the right in a lot of respects the left almost always punches up Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we go after people with real power real genuine can screw up your life mess with the air you breathe power because we disagree with them or because we think even though they're on our side, they're off course and they need to be at their ass kicked. The right almost always punches down. They pick on the poor. They pick on the weak. They pick on the dispossessed and the powerless because they're bullies. Mm-hmm. And the way they do that is by inventing an entire ideology that inverts the entire world, that turns the fact that this is a 71% Christian nation that you can wear a cross on television, that you can profess your faith anywhere you fucking want to, that's that's the real America we actually live in. In their minds, Christians are an oppressed minority in this country, mm-hmm. constantly under siege by secular humanists who are out to destroy them. Therefore, they are like our Sunni minority. Yeah, yeah. They, they really do think that there's some oppressed white constantly under siege conservative minority who who has who has to fight back against the evil forces arrayed against them. The evil forces always tend to be the same. They tend to be black people, brown people, uppity women, liberals, and the poor. And of course immigrants are sprinkled in there all but it's always the same people. And if you if you rationally look at each one of those groups all those groups are people who have always been on the outside looking in, are always weakest, are always the ones who are most screwed when recession hits. Mm-hmm. And it is this old, old sort of very brutal parenting approach that says you just need to beat them harder. 
Well, and just to re- totally related to that, I don't know yeah. if you read Brandon's email that he sent us this morning. One of our listeners, Brandon, sent us an email about this very issue that I thought was really worth reading. Uh, he says, Gingrich seems to think that poor people's children, for some reason, the other people's, rich people's children, don't apply, have a degraded work ethic. He wants to increase those children's work ethic. Right. But for some reason, he has no interest in building up the work ethic of rich people's children. Somehow they are exempt from that critique. Well, of course they are, because they're rich. Uh-huh. What better way to increase the work ethic of poor people than get them to clean the toilets of rich people's children? Mm-hmm. Somehow rich people's children either would not benefit from that type of work ethic or would not best be suited for that kind of learning. Yeah. Obviously, there are other opportunities that are being made in Gingrich's mind. Apparently, poor people's children should be exempted from those opportunities. So, you know, <laughs> we, we are segregating, literally, in this Georgia backwater douchebag's mind from the very beginning that poor children will be treated differently from rich children. Yeah. Because poverty is, 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 according to conservative doctrine, mm-hmm. uh, modern conservative doctrine, poverty is a moral failing. Yeah. And Unless it happens to you. Well, see, and that's case, the difference. It's bad luck or government or some brown person out there was given a job that I deserved or some affirmative action or some welfare queen somewhere stole my tax money. Well, and so, that's and it, what's changed now. The the. Democratic analyst who was on Rachel Maddow on Wednesday night uh-huh. talking about, you know, that worked in 2009. That, oh, yeah, I took out a second mortgage that I really couldn't afford, and I kind of have to blame myself for that. And yeah. now three years into this, it's like, no, who can I blame for this? Because this yeah. is not just me. This uh-huh. is not just me and my decisions. This is a conspiracy against the middle class. And yeah. the Occupy movement has changed the terms of this debate and Newt Gingrich wants it to be 1910 again mm-hmm. and be able to say, or, or back in the time of Dickens, he wants to be Ebenezer Scrooge and say, no, all these children need is a bath and a job in the poor farm, you yeah. know, in the in the poorhouse. Well, he wants, he wants it to be... He wants it um, to be a moral failing, which you can do when unemployment is at 3.5% or 4%. Right. When it gets up into the 15% range, it's... Your people, Newt Gingrich, who are suffering, mm-hmm. and you can't well, blame them because they will backfire on you. Well, that's that's why you have a ready-made conservative conspiracy on the shelf for every yeah. you know for all occasions. So now it's Fannie Mae. Yeah. Well, now or, it's now it's not just 1910. Now it's Germany 1928. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it's the Dolschlosts. Yeah. Now it's the secret conspiracy of the Jewish bankers, yeah, as it was yeah. in the in, in Germany between the wars. Yep. You have a middle class public that has been conditioned uh, in Germany, the, the you know, f- with centuries of anti semitism. It's just it was just in their fucking soil. Mm-hmm. You know, that's mm-hmm. where Protestantism came from. I, I, as you and I have I, I mentioned before, uh, Martin Luther's second most famous book was called, I believe, roughly translated, "The Jews and Their Lies." Yeah, yeah. The you know that movement had a deep, ugly anti-Semitic strain to it, and still, frankly, does in certain in certain manifestations. And so that you had the German middle class, the German bourgeois, if you will, ready and able 
to swallow a giant conspiracy about what really was going wrong with their country between the wars. But the blaming the banks are, is part of the problem. It's not an uh, anti-Semitic thing to blame the but banks blaming, this time. No, but the point was there was a conspiracy ready-made for uh, demagogues in Germany. Yeah. That there was a secret group of people inside the country who weren't really Germans and weren't really loyal and really actually caused us to lose the last war because they're a bunch of traitors. And they control the media. Transpose all of that into modern America. And you make have a it liberal. liberal cabal, yeah. a secret liberal conspiracy, the secret liberal media who won't tell you the truth, but Glenn Beck will and Rush Limbaugh will. And really, the people who are out to get you are are the immigrants and the minorities and the, and the gays and the intellectuals and the gypsies and the unions and the unions. The same fucking people. The problem is unionized janitors, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, that's, that's the, the people you, you need to be worried about. And if you just They're taking a job away from poor children. Exactly. Good American <laughs> children's job away from poor. And, and so when you're at 3% unemployment, you can make it a moral argument. Yeah. When you're at 9% unemployment for an that's the, and the, time, that's the official number, right. Yeah, which right. is way higher. Yeah. And you and I both know it's, it's in the 20s. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the number of people at or near poverty is indeed 40% yeah. of America. Yep. You know, it's it's staggering. And that's when I and, just lose it and start crying in your arms because it's not yeah. just that news, which I can sort of cope with. It's hard to cope, but I can cope with that. But then when it switches over to Newt Gingrich, that's when I lose it. Well, that's, you know, he is he should be wearing a brown shirt yeah. and talking about our secret internal enemies. He should be in prison and is where he that's, should be. Well, of course. Yeah. But that's that, what I'm saying is. This is, you know, there there is a template that the GOP is following, in which Newt Gingrich or someone like him makes perfect sense, and that is where we are simply going to double down on what's made us successful for the last forty years: hatred, fear, xenophobia, homophobia. Blame the liberals, blame the media, no matter what happens, mm-hmm. and hope for and, and 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 pray to God for another Reichstag fire. Yeah, so that we can yeah. have a, a catalyzing ins- right. instance. Because, you know, Newt Gingrich is, is a ridiculous candidate, right? Mm-hmm. He's an absurd candidate. One major national catastrophe at the right time, Newt Gingrich is, is an... By an he, enemy. A, yeah, yeah. By an internal enemy. Or and external Gingrich, enemy. Or Well, somebody, anybody, the right can blame anything on. And, and if you've watched Fox for the last 10 years, you know, the war on Christmas, okay. and we're back to the war, on, back Christmas. To the war on Christmas. They have a set... They have a playlist of here are the things we're going to blame liberals for today, and they play it over and over and over again. And again, as we always say when we watch this crap on television or here on the radio, Newt Gingrich is not the problem. The problem is a party full of of mentally underclocking meat sticks who think Newt Gingrich is smart and is reasonable and would vote for him. They are the problem, and until they go to their fucking graves, they will continue to be the problem. And that's where. That's where we have a real sharp disagreement with the softer side of liberalism and the and the play nice with everybody compromisers and accommodators. Because frankly, there is a problem in this country. If you could magically eliminate through uh, the waving of a magic wand, the bulk of the conservatives in this country, our national IQ would go up by 20 points and half our problems would just fucking disappear. Mm-hmm. Because then we would have politicians who would be perfectly willing to regulate the banks and perfectly willing to talk about global warming and perfectly willing to talk about and take action on the things that are really screwing this country up. But they won't do it because their base won't let them. 
and the base was created and mobilized by a very specific group of people in this country called Republicans. They are the problem. And because we are not allowed to say that on television, they will continue to be the problem. However, Blue Gal, yeah. I would like to report a, a theft. A theft? I would like to report a burglary. A burglary, you say? Yes, a burglary. I'd like to report a burglary because the expatriate conservatives, the people who have been – who are trying to straddle the fence, who are actually reacting in horror in very much the same way you are to Newt Gingrich, mm-hmm. um, have stolen the entire liberal critique of the right chapter and verse. They've just ripped it off completely. Um, and I'm going to read a little quote here from an article from Der Spiegel, which says as follows, when did the GOP lose touch with reality, wonders former Bush speechwriter David Frum in New York Magazine in In the New York Times, Ken Duberstein, Ronald Reagan's former chief of staff, calls this campaign season a reality show. While Wall Street Journal columnist and former Reagan confidant Peggy Noonan even spoke of a freak show. Wow. What is astonishing and and completely predictable because liberals have to be the eternal enemy. They have to be always wrong about everything. No matter where you are on the Republican spectrum, the one thing everyone can agree on going back to Bill Buckley and earlier, is that liberals, those 60 dirty hippies, are responsible for everything. Their problems are everything. The problem that that conservative expatriates, the ones who were actually freaked out by Newt Gingrich surging in the polls, including Megan McCain this morning, mm-hmm. is that they are – the only way they can critique Newt Gingrich and critique what's happening to the, the, the freak show that they're that their nomination nominating process is turned into is by is by ripping off the standard liberal critique of the Republican Party for the last thirty years. And if you'd like to see a really good example, <laughs> I urge you to Google "Little Red State Fundy," which is something I wrote as a children's story online in two thousand five. Which that you wrote exactly. <laughs> that I wrote I wrote in two thousand five, yeah. and it's just taking the little red hen story. Um, and transposing it over to the fundamentalist red state base. And it is what happens when the base who does all the work for your party, who does all the dirty work, who stuffs the envelopes, who gets out the vote, and who are, are loyal golem, who are the loyal foot soldiers of your movement and are crazy, really fucking stone crazy. But you've recruited them to be the soldiers in your army. What happens when they finally turn on you and say – now we own you. Yeah. Now that we've won everything, now that we've conquered every enemy, now we're going to call the fucking shots. What happens to the moderates and the libertarians and the independents when they didn't want any part of all the dirty work? They wanted that done by the followers of Falwell and the people who listened to Rush Limbaugh. They wanted that all that crap done by the base. But once they did it, they wanted the base to shut up and sit down. This is what is driving George Will crazy and Karl Rove crazy. They're not angry with Donald Trump for – they're angry with Donald Trump as one grifter is angry with another grifter because Karl Rove created these pigeons and Donald Trump is sliding in at the last minute to pluck them. George Will lauded the Tea Party, cheered the Tea Party, thought they were a healthy thing for the GOP right up until Donald Trump slipped in the back door and started stealing them away from him. These are their fucking chumps. They bred them like fucking hothouse orchids. And now 
these late these Aravistes, these late arrivals, these Donald Trumps are showing up at the very last minute and saying, oh, you've gathered all the chumps together in one place? Fine. This is what I do for a living. They set up their little shop. They set up their little carnival. And suddenly they're not listening. The chumps aren't listening to Rove anymore or George Will anymore. Now they're listening to Herman Cain. <laughs> now they're listening to Donald Trump. And that's what's driving them crazy is that they built this machine and now this machine is being taken away from them just like liberals told them it would. And that's the problem they're facing. They cannot acknowledge – They can, George Will would rather chew his own fucking arm off yep. than admit that liberals were right all along. But he has to. So what do they do? So what does Noonan do? So what does David Frum do? What do these longtime Republican water carriers do now that their party is exploding in exactly the way liberals said they would? They're ripping off liberal critiques without ever acknowledging the liberals were right, right all along. Right, right, right. Which brings us to well, and what I'm what I'm going to be interested in because after this is all over, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm hoping, I mean, and I'm hoping this for the sake of the Republican Party. You and I have talked before many times we have. about how much we miss sane conservatives, yeah, where you can have a debate with someone about facts and have a different angle on government spending, and you know, even Ron Paul. You know, like you said, 30% right, 70% crazy. Mm-hmm. But his analysis of isn't it crazy that we're spending all this money on weapons that we really don't need and we're not using yep. and yep. that kind of government spending is absurd and we shouldn't be yeah. policing the whole world or pretending like we can build an empire when clearly that fails every time. And he's got a very good analysis of that. I would love to debate someone who felt that way and had their feelings about it grounded in fact. Yep. Yep. That's you can't do that anymore. No. And I'm sorry, we have a cat out here that. What's the problem? <laughs> what, what's the problem? You okay? What? You all right? Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm worried that she's. Does she have upset tummy or? What's going on, huh? No. There's there's two sort of loud announcements. Yeah. Presence with authority, baritone. One sounds. is I just this, went we to the a- bathroom, and the other one is I would have to throw up. Well, and the other one is I just woke up. Oh, I just woke up. Well, she I was just, just sitting up. in the hallway, and then she came out, and she made the big noise. Well, now she's, now she's stretching, so maybe she did just wake up. It's weird, because this little striped cat, who is, let's face it, crazy. She's crazy. But doing better now that she has... Well, she has children kids. around her all the time, so she's... But this little tiny cat, who used to make this high-pitched meep, meep, meep sound, will suddenly you know, be walking around downstairs, mm-hmm. or just wake up. And suddenly there's this, what the hell was that? It's an internet kitty. Oh, my God. You walk around the corner and look at her. She goes, oh, hi. Oh, hi. Here I am. Yeah. Yeah. But as I was saying, I miss rational conservatives that you could have a debate with. And I would still think they were wrong, and they would think I was wrong. But you could have this this really heady debate with someone about government spending or – you know, the welfare state and, and have a discussion about it. And you can't do that anymore because of the there's only just this core ideology of hate. And I'm going to say anything I need to say, truth or not, to make liberals mad. Well, and if and that's the goal of the Republican Party now is I don't give a rat's behind about governing. I don't care about policy. I don't care about anything but making liberals mad. Newt Gingrich is your man. because. <laughs> yes. He hates better than anybody, anybody else. else. Exactly. He's really good at He's hating. Good at He's hating. really good at and his language is all vitriol, and all so I miss this conservative, you know, yeah. debate situation. And I want to save the Republican Party for that reason. I want well, that to happen. 
And and the thing about those Republicans, mm-hmm. in my experience, my limited experience, but it's it's fairly, I think, fairly representative, is that those Republicans have either become libertarians, yeah. in which case they've just gone off the end of the crazy train, yeah. Yeah. or they're now conservative Democrats or centrists, more likely, yeah. and yeah. slash independents. I'm an independent, and the, right. And the problem with, with arguing with those people is that they – Still, on a very on a visceral level, cannot acknowledge that the party they were just a member of is really as sick and as broken and as twisted and as evil as it has become. Yeah. Yeah. So they are the ones who just who, who slavishly read and regurgitate David Brooks. David Brooks has another great column today. Yeah. Yeah. David Brooks is very insightful. David Brooks is very wise. No, David Brooks is a liar, but he tells centrist. Moderate Republicans, the lie that they need. Well, to and, hear. and they also make up stuff about liberals too. As much yeah. as much well, as Fox News does, as much as yeah. you know, we've got crazy people on the right. They're just crazy, and like the crazy people on the left. Yeah, they have. They tell that. That's the thing. They are both prisoners of the same lie, yep. and the reason that they and and the lock to their prison is on the inside of the door. They can yeah. get out of this prison anytime they want to, but to do that, they would have to acknowledge. This is, this is something, again, we have talked about many times. To get out of this psychological, cultural, political prison that they feel trapped in, they would have to acknowledge the one thing they cannot acknowledge, which is they have been wrong for their most of their lives. Yep. And that those filthy, and dirty hippies. And they're responsible hippies, for that. Yeah. And they're responsible for the, they are responsible for the most part for the condition we're in. The both sides are not equally wrong. The liberals are right far more often than they're wrong. And that, that as many times as they've been wrong in the last 30 years, liberals, the dirty, stinking hippies have been right. And they can't they, – uh, again, to reiterate, they would rather die than admit mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. The, the three words a conservative cannot say is I was wrong. Well, and the only way say, to save the Republican Party, I believe, is a repeat of 1964, which is there has to be such a landslide mm-hmm. that – they have to reform themselves. And yep. and I think that will happen because the people with money, Rove and the Koch brothers, they want to win elections. They really want power and want they're not just interested in making liberals mad. They want to take over. Mm-hmm. And I think you're going to see party reforms within the Republican Party after 2012 of Way fewer debates and much more from the top screening of candidates. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I would even go, even though it would disqualify John Huntsman, I would even go so far as to suggest, you know, you have to be holding office uh, at this moment to run for president in the Republican primaries because all these people who are not, and I know that just means you're going to have Perry and Bachman, and uh, it would eliminate Newt and it would eliminate. Uh, Mitt, too. Yeah, and Herman Cain. And Herman Cain. Yeah, well. But the people who have current voting records and current legislative records are the ones that the party needs to sort of have some sort of accountability, even though that means (laughs) the crazy ones. But I just really think the Republican Party needs to be saved from this. Well, I, I think it's too late. Well, it's too late now. Yeah. But I'm saying long term, for the for the sake of the republic, uh-huh. 
this crazy train has to end. Well, I, I agree that they need a beating as bad as 1964. Yeah. The yeah. problem is that the candidate that caused them to get whipped so bad in 64 would now be considered a moderate in their own party. Yeah, well, that's... And so they are already so far to the right. Well, but there was they, an awful lot it. of so far to the right. The xenophobia was there with the and yeah. and this whole thing with too with Rick Santorum saying that John F. Kennedy was not a good enough Catholic. You we've still got that kind of you've got the anti-Catholic xenophobia. You've got the um, racism. Everything you had, you have now. You did have in 1964. It might have yeah. been a little more cleaned up, in a nicer suit, but it was yeah. it was the same. All there. So, and, and it, it is, was John Birch Society, which it still yeah. is today. It's just got a different, you know, it's Fox News instead and Glenn well, Beck instead. And as Kevin Phillips wrote in his book, and I think John Dean wrote in his book, you have these are the authoritarians. Yeah, yeah. And they did a, a bunch of statistical analysis. One of them was conservative, conservatives of the conscience. The other one was American theocracy or something like that. But they, they there were these long thorough studies of American culture and they boil it down to about 25 to 27% of the United States population are fascists in their hearts. They're authoritarians. They want to follow a man, a white man on a horse in a uniform who will make, who will bring order to the the galaxy. It makes them comfortable. It makes them comfortable to feel that way. Yeah. And they, they, and they are authoritarian. They're hardwired authoritarians and they either want to follow the, the, uh, military, rigorous, orderly regime of an authoritarian, or they want to be <laughs> the authoritarian yeah, yeah. leader of a regime. They don't really don't care, but they are wired to be brown shirts. And there's about 25 to 27% of them, and right now they're all in one political party. And they are all marching to the same beat, which is the beat they were taught for the last 40 years, which is brown people and liberals and uppity women and immigrants are what's destroying America. Barack, and, and once you get them believing that, the only place for them to march is off the fucking cliff or into fucking Poland. Yeah, yeah. There's no end game to this other than this. these people have a theocratic, fascist takeover of our government. And they're not going to stop. It's not like losing an election is going to persuade them they were wrong. They lost two elections in a row. They lost in 2006 pretty decisively. They lost in 2008 pretty decisively. Their answer, Barack Obama is not born in this country. He's a Kenyan communist usurper. He is – I want to see his birth certificate and he's trying to kill us all and there's death penalties and blah, 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 blah. And John Stewart had a whole shtick on this. Ten weeks after the election of Barack Obama, they were already – Oh, they had it all organized, this, yeah. They had, it all, they had this mythology of, of the secret Kenyan usurper, communist, Marxist, et cetera, et cetera. And now – taxing you, you to death. <laughs> and who destroyed the economy. Yeah, who, just, yeah. who personally destroyed the economy deliberately because he hates capitalism. This was all locked and loaded and ready to go the minute Barack Obama was sworn into office. And these people – do not react to losing an election with, oh my gosh, perhaps we should do some introspection. Because if they introspected for a second, they would, they would disintegrate. They would, they would burst into flames. Because what they would see would be so horrifying <laughs> that they would run into the sea and, and, and apologizing to God and man and the founding fathers all the way underwater. So that's never going to happen. They're never going to acknowledge they were wrong. They have one way out of the box, and that's forward. And forward always means... Hating harder, being more brutal, being more vicious, t- 
turn, as I say, turn Rush up louder. That's how they cope with their problems. They just double down on the crazy. And the only people left in this is why in, in, in literature, somebody has to do character advancement. Some the protagonist is usually the person whose character is supposed to change over the course of the story, because evil just stays evil. But somebody in our little political psychodrama has to learn something and move forward. And the only people left to learn anything are liberals. And what liberals learned during the Iraq war and are having to relearn, I think we're getting better at holding on to that knowledge through each cycle, is we can never stop stomping the shit out of these people. We can never stop beating Rush and Newt and Sean over the fucking head. We can never stop because the minute we do, the darkness just swarms back in, fully formed with their conspiracy theories in hand, going, screaming about the committed Marxist in the White House. And there's no debating with them. And they will not permit people who have moderate opinions, reasonable opinions that I might disagree with. In their party, yeah. yeah. Anywhere near. And the people who control the microphones in this country won't even acknowledge this is going on. Well, that's what we're going to talk about next, which is the unreliable narrators that we have. In our media. In our media. And Mm -hmm. I was listening to an audiobook this past week that I finally stopped listening to and went and looked up all the spoilers so I would just know how it ended. <laughs> because I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand to listen to it. And It's, it's the Bible, right? No. Let, me <laughs> you, let me tell you how it ends. It ends with a fire. I hate, I hate, to, tell you, I hate to tell you who dies in the end. <laughs> Everybody. <laughs> Everybody dies. No, Jesus, no. I, I right? was listening right? to Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, which I'm sure yeah, many yeah. of our listeners are familiar with. But I could not get over the violence against women in that book. It's not, I know it's a murder mystery and it's a murderer of women and he's really bad and that's what's going on. But there were, there were acts of violence against women that had nothing to do with the mystery. It was just one of the protagonists in this story is brutalized more than once and it seems to be a foil of the story to point out how intelligent and smart and vicious she is that she finds a way to get revenge. But again, it has nothing to do with the overall mystery of the story. It it shows her the side of her personality that she survives and gets back at her brutalizers. But so what? You know, and I hate to say so what about violence against women, but this had nothing to do with the larger plot of the story. And I couldn't stand it because it was so gratuitous, in my opinion. And you and I talked about this, and I said, I really hate that I have to abandon a book right in the middle because I've committed, you know, seven hours of my life that I'll never get back again to listening to this, but I can't listen to it anymore. And you said, it reminds me of Casablanca. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. In a very specific way. And I said, what? So if you go you ahead and explain, about? and I was impressed with your your answer to my what? Well, thank, well, thank uh, you. And, tell and me, it, tell it, tell our listeners why it reminds you of Casablanca. Well, it reminds me of because everything reminds me of Casablanca. <laughs> 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 Gary Ross. It's one of the two. Uh, exactly, exactly. Or the Godfather. <laughs> or the Godfather. One and two. I was going to say. Yeah, but it reminds me. It reminds me of Casablanca in a very specific way, and and that is. Casablanca movie, the movie was made in 1942. There's a memorable line in Casablanca where where Rick, played by Humphrey Bogart, if you haven't seen Casablanca really, just stop listening right now and go, Casablanca. Because you just, 
you know, my heart breaks for you if you don't know this movie. And I envy you like health to, to be, be watching if it this the is the first time, time you've ever right. seen it. But Rick is getting drunk with Sam. Um, and he's asking Sam if it's December 1941 in Casablanca, what time is it in New York? And says, Sam says, my watch is stopped. Mm-hmm. But this takes place on the eve of Pearl Harbor, right around Pearl Harbor. The movie was made in 1942 or released in 1942. But this was early World War II. This is pre-American involvement, really. Uh, that's when the movie is set, pre-American involvement. It, it's, it's an entirely European story about people fleeing Nazi persecution. There's no mention of concentration camps. There's no mention of all the really atrocious evil that Nazis were committing at the time. There's simply the the Nazi army is rolling in. The Nazis are taking over Paris, and they're coming for you next. And America is asleep halfway around the world, blissfully unaware of any of this happening, which is sort of true. That's sort of where America was at the time. So – but – the thing you want to happen from the very beginning of the movie to the very end is you want Rick to shoot the fucking Nazi. <laughs> you want Rick – you want to see the Nazi die because the Nazi is evil. But you don't need to see the horrors up close and personal. You need to see the way people react to the villain. You need to see the way the villain takes over a bar, the way the villains treat other people, the way they they interrogate, the way they have hounded good men, and the way that everyone is afraid of them. Everybody but really two people, Rick and and Victor Laszlo are the two people who are totally unafraid of – or unimpressed or unafraid. Victor Laszlo has escaped from their camps once or twice Mm -hmm. and is hunted by the Nazis and Rick just doesn't give a shit anymore. He's not afraid of anything because he doesn't care. All he wants Um, to do is survive. He just wants to survive and he's built a wall around his heart for all kinds of reasons including the Nazis. Yeah. Yeah. And and, And the woman he loved. Um, broke his heart. Yep. And, and this is a love story. It's a war story. It's a historical document, if you will. It's a very funny movie. It's a buddy flick. In the end, it's a buddy flick. Yep. It's Rick and, it's Rick and Louie. It's, it's, it's the buddy story when they both finally realize they have to fight for the good guys. But the, the difference is, you don't need to see any of the violence that's going on. No. You need to see, the, the, the drama is built around the fact that everybody is afraid of these people. The entire continent of Europe is fleeing from the invading Nazis. You don't need to see them butchering people in slow motion. You don't need to see the, the horror of concentration camps up close and personal. All you need to know to make this movie work is that the, the villain is really bad. And you really want to see the villain take it and you know get shot by the good guy in the end, which is what happens. And that's what remind, that's a, you know that that is the sign of a of a sloppy dramatist of someone who 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 really has something else going on here because the elegance of Casablanca is there's really only two shootings. Yep. And yep. one is uh, Ugarte trying to get away. Yes. Um, right. And one is Major Strassa takes one right in the chest. From the hero. The hero kills the fucking Nazi and the audience stands up and cheers. But it's done in such a way that – it's done in the in the elegant, dramatic way of showing people reacting to the bad guy and people talking about the losses that they've suffered. And when Major Strasse is interrogating Rick and Rick is just running him in circles, saying, are you one of those people that can't stand to think of us in your beloved Paris? And Rick says, it's not particularly my beloved Paris. What about your beloved New York? Well, you know, ask me when you get there. 
And there are certain parts of New York I wouldn't suggest you try to you try to invade. Being flip, very clear that this is a struggle between evil and good, and it's played out so well that in the end you don't need to see one lick of violence. It works exactly. perfectly well. Exactly. Uh, and and. And that's what just when you described your experience with the girl with the dragon tattoo, I'm like, that's just bad writing. Yep. You know, that is some somebody working out some other. It's an excuse to beat up women, to abuse women, to 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 shred women. Uh, because in the end, the bad guys are going to lose. Yep. And you, I need to show you how really, really, really bad they are. No, you don't. You really don't. You need to show me how people react to the bad guy. You need to show me how people cringe in fear at Darth Vader. Yeah. You don't need to show me what minute by minute – you don't need a minute by minute account of his atrocities in real time looking right over his shoulder. That is gratuitous and unnecessary and ultimately off-putting. And I don't need to see it. I, I haven't read the book. I, based on your description, I don't want to see I don't want to read the book. I can go rent Casablanca anytime I want to or read some Agatha Christie. Well, which and sounds and like, it's not – a horribly written book, it, although I have to say it's translated. So it, you're reading a translation anyway, and you never know. In in the original Swedish, it could be fan. I think it's Swedish. It could be fantastic. But that's you know, I'm done. That's all I have to say. Is I'm done with it, and I'm not going to go see the movie. And okay, do you want to talk about the unreliable narrator? <laughs> I think people just have to connect the dots on that one. Okay. Except, you, except gonna... what you said about Poe was interesting at lunch. I do. I did think that was good. You know, the the Telltale Heart. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's then I'll run it down really quick. Yeah. Which is what we talked about at lunch was the art of the unreliable narrator and the thing that makes Poe. Poe wasn't the first one, but he was. He he very nearly invented the short story, but he really leaned heavily. He really refined the art of the unreliable narrator, and. That is a sensibility that both you and I bring to our analysis of the media because in Poe's Telltale Heart and the Cask of Amontillado and I think the Black Hat as well and a bunch of his stories where people get murdered horribly, what you realize very quickly into the story, they're all first-person narration. What you realize very quickly in the story is, oh, the narrator is insane. Yeah. Or the oh. narrator killed somebody or the narrator did yeah. something horrible and we can't trust him. And and is explaining to us. Well, the, the the narrator, of course, did something horrible. I think it was his eye. That's when I decided to kill him. Mm-hmm. Or when he ventured upon insult. That's when I determined to destroy him. That's that's the telltale heart. But it's it's this launching of this narrative of how dare you call me crazy? Don't you understand how rational I am? Let me explain to you. Let me sh- let me show you how calmly. And 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 easily, how calmly and rationally I explained to you why I killed the guy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you realize, A, a horrible crime has been committed, and the person who's telling the story is crazy, mm-hmm. is completely unreliable. And so you don't really know what the hell's going on. And the story does not become one of the reportage of a crime. It becomes the internal workings of a psychotic mind mm-hmm. and how that person's Why am I craziness. thinking of David Brooks right now? Bingo. See, <laughs> this, this is... This is what happens when, first of all, we don't have, you and I don't have any access to the people in the media at all. No. I don't have anybody's, I have a couple people's phone numbers that you I don't even you know, own I've, a Rolodex. No, no. I, I, I wouldn't know how to contact David Gregory. If I've, I've tweeted him a couple of times. I've emailed his producer a couple of He's times. He's blocked me. I, and I, yeah, they've blocked me. They, they don't listen to me anymore at all. And so it's not like we know based on the drinks we have after work 
what's really going on with the media. But it is such a consistent black box where the news of the world comes in one end and the same extruded path comes out the other that at some point you can start to deduce what must be going on inside the box because our media is in a sense the ultimate unreliable narrator. There are certain things they will not talk about under any circumstances. There are certain lies they always tell. There are certain they're always unreliable in a very specific way, and you sort of walk back the the telltale signs of their unreliability. What didn't they talk about this week? What did they refuse to talk about when they had so and so under the microscope? What question did David Gregory refuse to ask Newt Gingrich that any decent reporter would ask him? What did David Brooks avoid talking about when he talked about Wall Street for the third time in a row? And you start to notice this really distinct pattern of unreliability. Yep. Their particular psychosis is blah, blah, blah. And that's where I, I thought it as, a, as simply a literary analysis of how they lie to us is, is fascinating. Because, again, I'll never be able to, to ask David Brooks point blank, why, why, why did you lie here, here, and here? And if that ever does happen, I will never be given the chance to ask follow-up questions. That's never going to happen. Right. No one's ever going to hold these people to account because the blowback from starting to hold media figures to account for the shit they say would be so devastating. It would run through our media like a plague. There would be nobody left standing if we started treating people as if they had to be held responsible and treated them as if it were a meritocracy. As if you get, if you get four things horribly wrong, you're fired and you never get to talk about them again. So that would cause mass unemployment. But what you can do is, for entertainment value, but also to have a sense of control and a sense of insight into what's really going on, is look at this as if it were one long, very ugly novel being written by one type of person, a progressive novel being written chapter by chapter by people who are very similar to each other in their views, and start to notice that consistent. They will not talk about certain things, and they will obsess over other things. And take and, and then you can start to notice that, again, as I said, the unreliability always runs in the same direction. It always runs downhill. And as I noted in our pregame, I think it was John Heilman, long ago on some godforsaken Sunday on the Chris Matthews show probably, who did grudgingly acknowledge that the, the liberals were angry with the media because of how much in the tank the media was with the Bush administration during the Iraq war. And I believe he said, and they kind of have a they point. They kind of have a point. You know, they kind they of have a point, but right. let's move on to the next thing. They were kind of right about that. And that's, that and that's when my eyes roll back into my head because the, t- the yeah. subject has changed so quickly. And, you know, yeah. the, other, the other thing that I think about is that sometimes – and I'm going to use a phrase that only you have ever used in front of me, Drift Glass. But <laughs> really? The, the times when it is most revealing, the, this unreliable narrator, is when there's more than one of them having a conversation and they trip over their own dick. That's the way you, yes. you would say it. <laughs> yes. This yes. week on Morning Joe, T. Boone Pickens was on complaining about his tax bill. And he said, I paid $750,000 in taxes last year. Do you think that's fair? And Micah replied and said the thing you're never supposed to say, which is, well, it depends. How much did you make last year? 
Uh-huh. And Joe Scarborough lost it. You're not allowed to ask him that. That's none of your business. Yep. Yep. Because she broke the rule, which is, no, we're going to allow him to make this crazy argument without f- all of the facts. Mm-hmm. And and he said, well, you know, I'm 70-some years old, and I'm this and I'm that, and so, therefore, I shouldn't have this tax burden, which is, you know, already he's pulling from Frank Luntz. You know, it's taxes are a burden, and right. uh, any and amount old. is too much. And, and if it's, I am. Yeah, and I'm helpless yeah. against the big government, and on and on and on. But Micah cut right through it and said, you know, what is that as a percentage of your income? Is that uh-huh. 12% or is that 21% or is that 81%? Uh-huh. You know, if it's 81%, okay, maybe that's a little high. If it's 20% or 11%, First of all, you have too much goddamn money. (laughs) (laughs) And secondly, you're not paying enough in taxes. Right. I don't want to tax you into the poorhouse, but I want you to pay your fair share. And and the Scarborough answer, this is where I really it really does actually bleed into psychosis and bleed into the unreliable narrator. Because when two of them are together and one of them freaks out that someone pooped on the table, someone asked even by accident, one of the questions you're never supposed to ask, they always resort to, and I, I've seen this happen time and time and time again, what um, I learned from Harlan Ellison years ago was is called Ganser's Disorder. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or Ganser's Syndrome. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's called prison psychosis. It's the, it's the uh, disorder of the approximate answer where I believe the example he used was there was a guy who was in prison for stomping someone to death. You know, using stomping him with his feet till the person died, and the question that was posed to him was, "Did you do this?" And the answer was, "Well, you know, I was wearing sneakers, and sneakers are soft." <laughs> it, it's like, wait a minute, that's not an answer. That's not that's an that's answer. A, it, yeah, it sounds like an answer. It it <laughs> involved your feet and the shoes you were wearing, but it actually you didn't answer the question. Yeah, yeah. And so, what happens when people who are habitual liars? And let's be really clear, David Brooks is a habitual liar. I published a massive post. <laughs> This week, going back to his weekly standard stuff from the 90s, and he just lies constantly. He's gotten more things wrong than you could possibly imagine and has never acknowledged it. It just slides right on past it. Oh, I got that wrong? Well, you know, we're not going to talk about that anymore. Let's move on to the next lie. Tom Friedman is a massive liar. David Gregory permits massive liars on his program and never asks them hard questions or rarely does and is himself a co-conspirator. And on and on and on and on and on. And what happens when somebody accidentally sneaks in into the wire and asks the embarrassing, inappropriate, honest question that you would pray to God that some journalist somewhere would actually ask? The, they, they never answer it, but they always answer in the approximate. You know, how much do you make? Yeah. I'm very old. Yes. <laughs> well, what, is, what does that have to do with anything? I'm an old man. I'm an old man. And, and you're not supposed to ask that question. <laughs> You know, it's so wait a minute. True. That's psychotic. That's that is nothing. If you don't, if you think it's unfair for me to ask you how much you make, you rich old fuck. Yeah. Uh, and and how much did you did you write off all those billions and millions you spent trashing the Clintons in the nineties? Because we don't forget that you were one of the co-conspirators behind the vast right wing conspiracy, T. Boone Pickens, which is why I shocked the hell out of everybody when you were on stage yeah, with Rahm Emanuel yeah, yeah. in Chicago in an event that I went to pimping uh, natural gas. Yep. Yep. And but we all know and, that you and all your all, wind your wind farm write offs. Yeah. yeah, I mean Yeah. We all we, we remember this shit. But if it's 
if it is an unfair question to ask you how much you make, then it's an unfair critique to say you pay too much yes, in taxes. Yeah. And the answer that you're too you're an old man is not has nothing to do answer. with anything. Yes. It's what a it's what a guilty hardened criminal would say yeah. after having gone mad in the in in stir, yeah. as we assume Rod Blagojevich will be in a few years. Yeah. Rod, did you really sell the? Did you really try to sell the Senate seat? For money, Barack Obama sent it. Well, you know, I'm, I'm my, in prison. <laughs> my, my hair is most lustrous. Well, wait a minute. That I mean, have you noticed how my hair hasn't hasn't aged a day in the yeah. ten years I've been in prison? God. And that's but those are the answers that habitual liars give because habitual liars, as, as I said in some post somewhere, lies are the music of the street. Yep. And when you lie all the time for a living, as these people do, they don't tell you up is down and left is right they don't tell but they tell the same same lie over and over again both sides do it both sides are wrong the right is no worse than the left gingrich is a smart guy bah, 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 bah. they tell the same lie over and over again so often that they, they their immune system starts to become compromised they are they can't deal with the truth anymore so they keep themselves in this bubble because their immune system has been so degraded by the lies they tell that one little truth freaks them out completely they run they run for their masks yeah. and they cover their mouths and that's why the more they they become inured to the truth the more they become used to lying for a living the more they depend on that bubble to be around them all the time the more they the more, the more they are desperate to keep people like us out yeah. because the minute we get inside we're like Edgar Allan Poe one more time. It's the Mask of the Red Death. <laughs> the minute we get inside the palace, wait a minute, we barricaded ourselves inside of here so we wouldn't have to deal with this shit. Now the plague is inside. They have no immunity. They have no defense against the truth, so they hide from it. And that's the story of our media. And that's why, from the outside, all this is very clear. And you really don't need anything more than a, a good head on your shoulders and some common sense to see it. Yeah, yeah. But that unreliable narrator, narrator is a big, huge part of the problem. It is. And, and, and once you start seeing it. Yeah, then you see it everywhere. If you see it there, <laughs> oh, my God, he's doing it right now. <laughs> Why don't you come in here? David Brooks is being an unreliable narrator on the TV right now. And, and when, you, when you read David Brooks with the understanding that he has his stock portfolio open while he's writing – and you can they make a really looking. good guess as to the energy stocks he owns. Then it all they makes start. sense. All of a sudden, you know, the short story ends with, and I scooped up my coupons from Exxon Mobil and took them yeah. off to to pay for my vacation. And he's done. You know, and the story. Well, and there the story ends. And there, well, and if you go back and read the early chapters of his story from the Weekly Standard, as I did this week. He was a partisan Republican. Yeah. He he argued he made because remember Bill Clinton was a third way Democrat. Yeah. He was a centrist Democrat. Yeah. He was the person who was trying to compromise. And David Brooks wrote this very long column about how interesting those people are and how utopian they are, but ultimately how foolish and absurd it was to try to be a centrist. Because partisan movements have reasons for existing and there's a tradition and and conservatives are proud to be conservatives and maybe the reason that most of these so-called centrists are, are former liberals is because they're ashamed of the fact that nobody in America likes them mm -hmm. or they're ashamed of the fact that the, the president of the United States is an embarrassment but most of these centrists are really just fucking liberals and he was really content with the critique that centrism or what he called beyondism 
people who are beyond politics, who are postpartisan, are interesting people, but they're inherently lightweight fools who will never govern anything because governance comes from believing in something. And centrists are always the people who don't, who want to not believe in anything, who want to get beyond the movement, who always reinvent every policy prescription every single time, whereas conservatives don't have to reinvent the wheel because we know what we believe. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. when that blew up in his face, completely blew up, and remember, between then and today, he was also a, a relentless George Bush booster. Yes. He yeah. talked about George Bush's dazzling competence. He talked about how the Bush tax cuts were a really good idea. And of course we could afford them because the economy had changed and we're going to have prosperity forever. And then came the Iraq war, which he loved and boosted and, and excoriated people for disagreeing with. And when all of that blew up in his face completely, he suddenly became a centrist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, sure, there was some stuff that happened over there to those people, those conservative people, of which I'm not a part, that was wrong. But, you know, liberals are wrong, too. And he just he slipped from one role to another, reversed himself completely. And because his peers are people like David Gregory and Tom Friedman and, and the rest of them, they just let him do it. Because the, the, the poison he was selling was so compatible with the poison they were selling that they just, oh, it's David Brooks. Yeah. Well, in fact, let's give him a promotion. Yeah. He's a centrist now. Good. Let's move him from the weekly standard where he has to work with Bill Crystal to the New York Times where he can be respectable and he can be America's leading. As long as he keeps pimping this idea that both sides are wrong. Except that's not what he does. No, no, it's not. Yeah, I was going to say. Attaches himself and he attaches himself tapeworm-like to the next big thing. Yep. Big thing in the '90s was Gingrich and the Republican Revolution and partisanship. So he was totally for that. He he was hooked himself up to George Bush until George Bush fell apart, and then this Barack Obama fellow came along, and he loved Barack Obama right up until Barack Obama said publicly what liberals have been saying all along, which is Barack Obama said, "I'm willing to compromise." Eight to one, nine to one, ten to one. But for God's sakes, we have to compromise. And the Republicans just trashed it. it. Just yep. lobbed cinder blocks into, into traffic. That's all they did. They sabotaged everything. And the minute Barack Obama said, the problem with these negotiations is that they're not negotiating in good faith, was the minute that David Brooks had a blubbery, wailing, gnashing He failed of me. Breakup. Yeah. He failed me. He's not really a centrist. He's a liberal. He's a Marxist liberal. And then he started sniffing around for the next big yeah. thing, which yeah. is Mitt Romney. But he's absolutely craven, so hollow, sad. and that's why they have him. At, that's why he will never lose his job at the New York Times, because whatever position is the prevailing wind is the position he will hold with absolute conviction until the next thing comes along. And no one will ever go back through his archives. Except you. He says, except for me, but I'm just, <laughs> I'm a dinky shit Midwest blogger. Yeah. Uh, who will always be a small Midwest blogger, and happily so. Yeah. Because ain't nobody want to hear the truth <laughs> inside, <laughs> the inside the beltway. <laughs> we want to thank our I listeners. You guys are great. Uh, we are not on Crooks and Liars this week. Uh, John Amato called me last night and actually Drift Glass answered the phone. You got a chance to talk to John Amato for the first time. That was kind of cool. They're going to expand their podcast offerings to different podcasts on Saturday night, and we are in the rotation for that. So we hope you'll all enjoy different podcasts. But we're still here every week at professionalleft.blogspot.com. And you can always join us there. We are also at netrootsradio.blogspot.com every Sunday night. We are on Facebook. Uh, we have, Drift Class, we have over 500 
fans on Facebook now. Isn't that awesome? That's amazing. That's that really. That's just. And, <laughs> and we've received could... a couple messages, both on Facebook and by email, asking us if we have subscription offers, wanting us to set up subscription offers. And I have gotten off my duff and done that. So mm-hmm. at our website, professionalleft.blogspot.com, we now have extra buttons there where if you would like to give us $5 a month or $10 a month, that is available. What we would like eventually is to have 1% of our listeners giving us 5 bucks a month. That will cover our podcast costs and our internet cable costs. And that makes it a zero-sum game in terms of it costing us anything to do this. Sad. That doesn't preclude any additional contributions, but that supports... No what we're doing very specifically. And if you uh-huh. like this show and want it to continue uh, and and you want to help make it sustainable, $5 a month will do that. Uh, if you are broke like we are, or if you are unemployed, you are exempt <laughs> from giving <laughs> yes. us money. I mean, don't feel yes. that way that we're demanding that. And one thing that you could do for us for Christmas that would be cost-free is to rate and review our podcast on iTunes. We would really appreciate that. That's mm-hmm. a gift that we'll keep on giving for us. That will. And you can rate our app as well at the iTunes store. We, we've been- and there's a real specific reason for that, because uh, we are very proud of what we do. Mm-hmm. We are absolutely jazzed by the feedback we get and what we learn from our listeners and their email. But there is a, a jet stream that... Once you are elevated into its path, it will accelerate you much, much faster. We will grow as a podcast and as a, as a, I hope a, a regular member of the elite professional alternate media from our little Midwest enclave <laughs> much faster once we hit a certain level. Right. Once we, once there's a critical mass, I'm not quite sure what it is. People on the internet, people are very secretive about their traffic. They're very secretive about their methods and and uh, uh, their sources and methods, as they say. And I understand that, but there is cert- there is clearly a a point above which, if you get above that level, suddenly you're in a different uh, different neighborhood, mm-hmm. and you you your your traffic will not jump by 100 a week, which ours does on a regular basis, but will start to double. Yeah. Yeah. Or triple. And we're, we think, we believe in our hearts we're quite good enough to participate at that level. And we're dedicated and, enough to keep doing this. Yeah. And we're yeah. just going to keep doing it. But one of the things you can do that's absolutely cost free is to rate us and review us, the, both the app and the, uh, on iTunes. Mm-hmm. It really does matter that the way we are rated actually does, we hope, hat will redound to our benefit. In a very tangible way, we're trying to hit a critical number of subscribers, a certain rotating number of people who contribute, and a certain uh, volume of people who listen to us and like what we do and, and communicate with us, who talk to us, who feed back to us, to get us to a point where it doesn't matter that we're not in L.A. or New York, frankly, or in D.C. Right. That what we do is good enough, and we can be like... I don't know, the Lester Bangs, <laughs> rock critic, that we can exist in the middle of the country. Well, I think it's really food. important that we're here geographically yeah. because oh, yeah. that's where the 99% is. Yeah, and we, are, we are the Midwest babies. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we and, really are. And that's really important. It's really important yeah. that we are in a Rust Belt state doing mm-hmm. this. 
I don't pretend to be reporting from the front lines of the Occupy no. movement at all. No. But the fact that we are outside of the New York, L.A., you know, Roman, uh, <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with being there, but the heart of empire. One you know, has that, to be one. You need you need those voices, but you also need voices out here. It's important to be in the provinces. Yeah. All right. Enough about you, Driftglass. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I want to say it was really fun last night when they were announcing all of the stuff about Blagojevich and that he's the fourth governor in four yeah. years of Illinois to go to prison. And you held up your finger saying, we're number one. Yeah. <laughs> We have an email address, proleftpodcast at gmail.com. We love it when you write us, and you guys send great emails. We actually have a couple in the hopper for future podcasts. In the near future, we will be reading more of your letters because they are just so good. Uh, be aware that if you write us at that address, we reserve the right to read your email on the air, unless you say otherwise, and do give us directions as to whether we can use your first name or not. We appreciate your email so much. Thank you again. So, Blue Gal, how are those Internet Kitties doing this week? The Internet Kitties are sponsoring a GOP vice presidential debate for everyone willing to be Mrs. Gingrich's gopher. Let's think about living. Let's think about loving. Let's think about the hooping and the hopping and the bopping and the loving, loving, loving. Let's forget about the whining and the crying, the shooting and the dying, and the fellow with a switchblade knife. Let's think about living. Let's think about life. This podcast is recorded under a Creative Commons license. Copyright 2011, Drift Glass Blue Gal Podcast.